First of all, put this damn thing on silent. Alright. Mm hmm. Damn. bringing this up people just gonna share it on momento right what is going on man why have they changed all of this ah oh, there it is almost there it's just they've changed the layout on my app so mm-hmm Almost done, people. All right. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. All right. So let me just take this off that. Make that easier. Cool. Bienvenidos a todos. And as always, swagatam, swagatam. Right, so, alright, look, salam from Cape Town, alright. Um, you remind me of Tekken. I never used to play Tekken much. A bit prior to that, Street Fighter. <laughs> Back in those days as a kid, we used to play Street Fighter. You do you work out in Ramadan? Hell yeah, hell yeah, gotta be done. Shahreen, Robin, Ahlan Wasahlan, Ramadan Kareem, Ramadan Kareem, and Mubarak to all of you people. You know, may Allah bless uh, this month for you all, for your family. May He make it a month of gains in all aspects. Amin, amin. Right, so what is going on? What is going on? No sooner does Ramadan arrive that we have the usual Ramadan debates are going on, the Taraweeh debates are going on, the moon sighting issue, the dawn issue. <laughs> hi, 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 hi. <laughs> These Masail, you've got I mean, I, you see, the more I think of it, the more I feel <laughs> staying away from religious people is just, <laughs> is from the wajibat. <laughs> but I really do feel that, you know, I my nasiha really to people, this is my 
Nasiha. I think you should all have make your circles of friends, your circle of, um, you know, your circles in general that you will chill out with or you will be with, that you will chat with. Make those people or make those circles of people who are just normal people. Normal but talented, of course, <laughs> but just regular. I seriously feel that these religious circles are toxic kind of unhealthy uh, people. I mean, there's no harm in knowing them and maybe as an occasional you resort to, uh, it's an occasional group, <laughs> but they're not your main kind of cohort of friends or your circles. I mean, just make regular friends with normal people out there, people with interests. I mean, people with they could have an interest in um, share common interests, maybe in sports, if you do sports, maybe in other things, maybe a bit if you want to, you know, challenge the the intellect. Uh, arts, for example, people who are into arts, maybe they're into poetry, maybe they're into literature, they're into discussions, philosophical discussions, maybe. I would really advise having circles like that. The religious crowd are just you see, you've got to understand that they will forever be constrained and they're, they're kind of like a very, uh, I hate to say this, but they're, they're like a, they can be a very nasty and toxic kind of atmosphere if that's your main group in life. I mean, if, you've, if that's just one of your several that, you know, you see them, but they're not your main people, then I think you're fine. But if you start just that becomes your main crowd, you will really suffer, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, you'll suffer in life. <laughs> You've got a hell of a road in front of you. <laughs> that's what I, that's what, that's my nasiha. You don't need to take it, but uh, I'm telling you that it's a toxic uh, Thing, right. So what else is going on? I mean, people, they're saying they're giving some of their uh, thoughts on the matter, whether I'm totally wacko or <laughs> that's the truth. But I'm just being honest on and seriously, do not let these people guilt trip you. Guilt tripping, they, they have no right to guilt trip, right? They'll be just as worse. I mean, just for, let alone just as bad, they will be worse. I'm telling you, I have access to, <laughs> to religious people <laughs> as a mufti. I can tell you that they, if not on an equal length, these people will be worse behind closed doors. So you'll rather just seek out decent human beings who are just human beings and they're, and they're good and, you know, they, they've got humanity in them and that comes first. You know, that's the, the, the primary target. And then other interests to challenge your intellect and challenge, I don't know, maybe your hobbies and things like that. Cool. So with that in mind, because I'm seeing even with this Ramadan thing, I'm seeing it again now. I'm seeing all the bickering, all the fighting, all the... Um, it's a shame. But we've become a... Uh, you see, Arthur... <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's interesting because here's a theory of mine. This this is based on a 
a general theory that you do find within uh, among sociologists and psychologists and other people um, where they speak of how people view themselves. We view ourselves in relation to others. That's on a social perspective. Um, that's in terms of what we get by with. And uh, quite a few uh, people have written on that and, and they present certain theories. I think I've spoken about them in the past as well. But my, my theory is I think religion is the same for people. And by religion, I mean institutionalized religion. Not, you see, to me, Islam today obviously is an institutionalized religion, uh, unfortunately. But in essence, the heart of Islam is not an institutionalized religion. And I feel that that deen of fitra is really ought to have its kind of shackles broken and it ought to be the free spirit that it was. So coming back to my point, um, th this this example I've mentioned once before as well, that there's a, a game devised by certain um, researchers where they will say that let's say, um, to see how people will make themselves suffer if it has to be so long. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very interesting game. I'll quickly reiterate it to you that it's, it's a hypothetical game where you and a person are at the table and somebody comes in and puts a million pounds on the table in a bag and states that you can have this, you can walk out of this door with this, what's on the table, with the condition, just one condition, bisharten wahid people, and that is that the other, not you, the other person, uh, gets to make you one offer of what your share is from this money. If you accept, you both walk out with that allotted share. If you decline, nobody walks out with anything. There is no conferring and there is no second chances. That is the, the only sharp, the only condition. Now, you think, well, okay, fine. Now, logic would teach you that something is better, better than nothing. Yeah, so if I walked into this room now, let's say I've not walked in with my wallet, so I've walked in with no cash. If I left this room with a hundred pounds, richer than when I walked in. £100 ain't much, but still, it's better than nothing. So logic would dictate that surely, since anything is better than nothing, this person, person A, would approve. But let's say from that million, the other person said, okay, you will get £1,000. That's it. Now, you just have to think about it. <laughs> you will say, up yours, mate. <laughs> no way on earth do I get 1,000 out of a million. So you would happily walk out with nothing and making sure they lose everything rather than you walk out with something so small. Now, you can just think about it. And most human beings, the absolute majority of them will go with the same. And statistics showed that uh, unless it was 20 to 30 percent of the overall offering, at least this participant wouldn't decline. They wouldn't accept it. So they were trying to understand, well, what's the psychology behind this? 
Um, right, so the psychology behind this is that people, you see, contentment is often in relation to others. Um, like people, satisfaction, sorry, better than contentment. I, no, I don't mean contentment. Satisfaction, self-satisfaction is in relation to others. So I will feel happy with things so long as I can compare with other people in my social surroundings and we're okay. So, you know, if I've got a Samsung phone, it's okay so long as, you know, other people have got let's say similar kind of phones if i've got let's say a samsung and everybody's got like eight models above mine then this very same phone that once brought me happiness will no longer bring me happiness because i view things in relation to others and i have to and that's the kind of structure by which i get by and on this note i actually think that the you know, like the Sufis historically were onto something. Um, and I mean, I'm sure some of them probably still are. But this whole thing of the nafs when they spoke about this, that you see, you have to stop kind of like seeing this, this kind of seeing yourself through the social lens or, or in relation to others has to there has to be a disconnect and just a kind of contentment. I think that is, um, if we are capable of doing that, we can get very far in life, although I think that is very difficult. And my theory was I, I feel people see religion in the same way, except in an impositional way, that I, I am happy with my religion so long as I can impose it on all, <laughs> all others who subscribe to it as well. The moment I can't impose it, or at least theoretically impose it, on others, then I'm no longer happy with this. So it's interesting, it's interesting. I mean, that's just some food for thought. Um, I find that people today feel, and this is, this is a big question mark, and I'm gonna leave this point with you guys and let's move on to some questions. I find that today people feel that if there was not a very finite uh, sorry, a very detailed list of do's and don'ts from God. Let's say that there is, a, let's say there are some do's and don'ts like do not murder, do not do things, not those kind of broad ones. Those everybody accepts. People feel if there isn't fine, like very specific, detailed do's and don'ts about our daily lives from God, then religion is useless and I find that quite disconcerting I find that quite problematic because to me that says a lot about people's personality and their relationship then with God because their relationship seems to only work in this kind of almost like a sadomasochistic kind of manner and of like being very strictly told off about certain things and so just knowing like imagine you just imagine God just told you just believe in me that's it I don't I'm not asking you anything else okay I'll tell you a few things don't kill people yeah you know a few let's just say some major prime commandments only which universally are accepted like don't steal don't do this don't do that and that's it 
Just believe in me. To most people, they would lose their faith. If God just said, simply believe in me. And that is, uh, I mean, to me, like I said, it's very disconcerting because that is pretty much the entire Meccan period. And the real first major pillars of um, personalities who embraced Islam in that period, just based on just God. They didn't base, they didn't come to Islam based on uh, a long list of when you're buying, make sure you pronounce this word. And when the fast begins, it better have the intention the night before. And when, you know, if, if, if you make an intention and they never had any of this. It was just God, you know. Just know that there is only one God. So that's, um, I think, some interesting food for thought. People, Ramadan, Ramadan, Ramadan. All right, so tonight what we're going to do is I will be taking a look. Uh, I mean, we'll take a look at some Ram uh, Ramadan, um, like a refresher on some top uh, often asked questions to do with Ramadan. I've got I've got some quite a few sent to me, uh, but I'll take a few others as well. <coughs> Excuse me. So we'll do that. Uh, in addition to that, we'll be taking a look at this hadith to do with if somebody consumes alcohol, is their salah acceptable? Uh, and that it is rejected for 40 days. Why is that hadith important? The reason that hadith is important is because many people are basing fasts on that as well, saying that, well, if you've drank, if you drank alcohol or if you smoked weed or if you took drugs or if you did something, your salah and psalm are unacceptable uh, for 40 days. That is baseless. It is nonsense. The hadith is unacceptable. And I will go through the whole detail of that, showing why the hadith is unacceptable. Um, so we'll take a look at that a little later on. Yep, Ustad Muhammad saying, Da'if! Oh, that reminds me of Ustad Muhammad. I'm going to come to a question, uh, I think, that you uh, asked me once previously as well about Makkah. So the third thing I will be taking a look at as well, uh, a, a heartfelt reply <laughs> to my Vabi friend, you know, my Wabler friend. <laughs> so there's a guy who I've, I've never heard of this guy, but he took out his time to refute me. So that's very kind of him. <laughs> Allah, Allah, Allah. What is it? Tum to takalluf ko bhi ikhlas samajhte ho faraz. Dost nahi hota har haat milane wala. These people. So there's this guy. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to try and uh, bring up. I'll show you guys what he looks like. And um, so somebody sent me a link or something of his saying, don't know if you, this guy's doing a refutation. He's done a refutation on you. And so I thought, well, I have to, you know, I feel I'm obliged. I'm obliged. Right. So I thought, who is this guy, first of all? And you couldn't make this up, people. Honestly, you couldn't make this up. I mean, I got to. I mean. <laughs> dear, 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 dear. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. 
Blimey! <laughs> it's it's been Ladin. <laughs> I mean, just look at <laughs> Bin Ladin seems to have been resurrected, and he's uh, he's done a refutation of me. <laughs> Honestly, these people, man, they couldn't. You know, if if the devil tried to. The devil tried to do a makeover to make them look more pathetic. He couldn't have done a... <laughs> Here he is. <laughs> Trying to show it so you can't... Allah! Ah, blimey, good-looking fella, you know this one. <laughs> so I'm going to come to him a little later on. <laughs> Is that a beard, for God's sake? Is that, is that a beard? Anyway, this one, my friend. This one, my lovely friend. I'm going to speak about him a little later on and his refutation and our uh, kind, loving reply. You know, holy month, holy month. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, in the Mufti Masala section. Uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that as well. But let's... Take a look at your questions, more importantly. Um, Yunus, ahlan wa sahlan. Masood, ahlan wa sahlan. Mufti Abu Le, is it okay to make dua in English in Salah? Absolutely. Uh, dua in Salah, according to the school of Medina, can be made in English. It can be made in any language. Um, so, for example, if you're in sujood or anything like that, um, you can make dua, that's absolutely fine. And the dua is unrestricted. You can ask for anything. Anything. <laughs> so you're like, and, and, ya Allah, can I? <laughs> but you better not be whispering it a bit aloud so the, the person next to you can hear it. And since it's in English, he understands. He's like, he's like, bloody hell. For me too, bro. For me too. <laughs> or he starts saying, uh, can I have one of those? <laughs> that dua for me as well, please. <laughs> right, so. Right, so, so, so. Well, what, let's take a look at some questions, people. What is going on? What is going on? Well, I'll try to bring up some... <laughs> Ah, oh, right. I'm going to try and bring up some of the questions you've asked. Right, first of all, one question before I forget. I was asked uh, by a few people, and Ustad Muhammad, who is online as well, I believe, he'd asked me, um, what is the city Bakka? That the first house that had been made... Um, most like uh, the context is dedicated to worship uh, was in and this is linnas for people uh in the place of bakka now many people have said that bakka is makka okay many people have said that um however in my understanding i've been looking into this slightly my understanding is that's not the case most likely I mean, Allahu A'lam, um, but I feel that Bakka most likely, most likely Allahu A'lam, some people say Allah just used a historical term here, that Makkah may have been called Bakka 
a long time ago. Although the historians generally do not list from the names of Mecca, from the many names given to Mecca, for example, Ummul Qura or different kind of names that people will give, what isn't generally recognized is Bakka. However, a bit further north towards the Levant region, uh, in modern day Lebanon, that kind of area, you do have a city of Baal Bak. Okay, so Baal Bak, uh, Bak here in antiquity was a term referring to city. So Bakka, in that understanding, in that part, this is going slightly north, so towards the, um, which would be modern day Lebanon, that, that, that area. There was a city dedicated to, or it was in the name of Baal, meant Lord, like Rab in, um, in the ancient language. And so this was a city dedicated to the Lord, Baal Bak. Now, some people then said that later on Baal, although many believed, meant just Sayyid or Rab, like the equivalent in Arabic or Lord, but became specific with a particular type of God later on. And, and it seems that a lot of historical research, anthropological findings demonstrate that there has been most likely continuous, um, um, there's been continuous habitation of this region, of this city, that human beings have inhabited this place for continuous uh, eight to nine thousand years of civilization. So it may be that that is perhaps the place, Allahu A'lam, that uh, Bakka may have been that region. Because there still is a, the famous kind of temple in Ba'al Bak, and you can see it online and things like this. Another reason why I don't feel it was Mecca is because the Arabian Peninsula was not inhabited uh, by humans for uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. So, so what, like, so for example, seven thousand years ago, it wouldn't have been inhabited. In fact, according to our general uh, Islamic understanding, another understanding, <coughs> Ibrahim salam went to Mecca, and he's kind of built this, uh, the first, you know, he's kind of helped establish the Kaaba. Now, Ibrahim salam is not that. Even if we're stretching this between three to four thousand years ago, that's still not seven thousand years ago. For example, the other thing is that this house. If you're going to say Ibrahim in Ibrahim's salam's time, and there were certain Arabian tribes around in Arabia, although Mecca wasn't so inhabited at that time, it wasn't, they would have not been calling it Bakka. They would have been referring to this as it became known as Mecca. The other thing is that even if people had crossed that region, this wasn't a house for Linnas, as the verse says. So if you're going to say, well, Adam salam had built something here, you know, so long ago, let's just say, if we run with that hypothesis, the issue is it wasn't for mankind. It may have been that Adam salam had something specific for him. It may have been, but it wasn't something for Linnas in general. So it may be most likely it resonates that it that this verse is speaking about a, a settlement or a place that people, one of the first human uh, 
civilization settlements took place and began to worship God. And that seems to Allahu A'lam at this stage maybe resonate with Ba'labak. Wallahu A'lam. But uh, that's something uh, I, th I think obviously we have no, you know, absolute knowledge belongs to Allah alone. Imam Mark is in the house. Ahlan wa sahlan, people. Imam Mark, awesome, legendary Imam from the States. Uh, do reach out to him with your questions as well. Right. <clears throat> right, people. Salam Mufti. Who do you think the Pharaoh of the Exodus was? I do think it was um, Ramesses. Uh, I'm not um, pretty much. I am in line with that way of thinking. Ramesses, the the second. Some people have said the third. Um, I do believe I'm. That's the one I'm pretty much going with as well. The one um, that people, most people, are going with. I mean, some people have said maybe it was Khufu or maybe it was some others. Uh, but I'm pretty. I mean, Allahu A'lam. But that's what I seem to fall in line with as well. And that's a discussion I have had that in the past. Uh, whether Fir'aun was drowned in 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 the in the Red Sea or not, I've said previously that I feel that maybe he would, he didn't drown. That when Allah says today we save you, it meant that he was saved, and hence that's in line with what the the Jewish Bible teaches as well that that Pharaoh did actually go on and he did live on uh, much after the Israelites had left and actually lived a very long life. Um, why he didn't pursue the Israelites any further was just because of the humiliation. And I think that makes more sense that he knew and then did Kufar. Because if we're just going to go with the understanding that it was simply death, that with death he knew, then that's all human beings, uh, one could argue, or most human beings, one could argue, what made Fir'aun so special. But the verse refers to Fir'aun's kufr as juhud, jahad, that he, it's a kind of arrogance. And that would make sense if he was saved. Um, anyway, but that's a discussion for another day. Uh, Mufti, can you explain... Yes, so that's uh, Aiden, that's what I'm talking about. That today we save you with your body. Now, many people have felt that <coughs> Fir'aun was, that he, that he drowned in the Red Sea, that the sea when it collapsed. Uh, the Bible, however, doesn't refer to him drowning. It refers to his chariots and his army drowning, much of his army, but not him. It doesn't specify, the Jewish Bible doesn't specify, or the Old Testament, that Pharaoh actually drowned. Um, and that seems to make sense as well. One with the verse of the Quran, that today we save you with your body. So that you may be a sign, this is what, this is what stubborn kufar is like. Do you understand? Because if he drowned, that may have forced the inhabitants of uh, the, the, his successors and the whole army and pharaohs inherited the next pharaoh to retaliate. Because they would have felt that he, you know, that these people killed our pharaoh. And pharaoh to them was the, the kind of demi-god. I mean, he, he had like a, a divine status. He wasn't something just, just like a king or a minister. 
So it's logical that if Fir'aun was to have been killed uh, whilst chasing the Israelites, that there would have been heavy military repercussions that where they would have come to cross the Jordan River and they would have caught the Israelites because the Israelites within, uh, I mean, decades later, but they set up their whole establishment. The kingdom of Israel is set up. Cool. All right, let's move on to some of these questions, people. Is Tarawih compulsory? Hell no, Tarawih is not compulsory. Let's move to some of these Ramadan questions, right? So beginning with that, is Tarawih compulsory? No, it is not. And the ulama disagree on the status of Tarawih. <clears throat> now, uh, many people, some people, sorry, they all accept that Tarawih was something that the Prophet did. What status did he, like what ranking did this prayer take? They, so they accept, let me simplify this. Muslims accept that there was a prayer that the Prophet introduced. Sorry, not introduced, that he prayed himself. During the month of Ramadan, in isolation, they agree on this. Then they disagree on what, how that prayer ranks amongst uh, our duties and they disagree on how this prayer should be prayed. So they disagree on all of that. They just accept that the Prophet did pray. We're not quite sure. I mean, we are like, it's not quite agreed upon how or what he prayed. But we understand that he did pray. And then everybody has kind of taken their own analysis of what, what happened. We also accept that the Prophet never ever prayed in the mosque, right? So we all accept this about the Prophet, that he prayed some prayers at home. That's it, privately. They were private prayers. Now, some people have understood Tarawih to be like a semi or a quasi-obligatory prayer. So it's they don't call it obligatory, like. but some of them will say it's like some of the Hanafiya will... will place it towards a wajib almost um, or those who will say it's a sunnah mu'akkada and emphasize sunnah but will say you're sinful for leaving it now that is that makes it quasi obligatory because if you're sinful for leaving it then it must be an obligation so leaving the semantics aside this is what they believe that a person is sinful if he doesn't pray tarawih that was not the understanding that was inherited in the city of the Prophet. The city of the Prophet people, Madinatul Munawwara, uh, with the companions living there and thousands of them that were buried there, and their students and then their students. So their students being the Tabi'een and their students being the Taba Tabi'een, those who come after them and amongst them Imam Malik. He uh, transmits this understanding when he's asked about Taraweeh. Imam Malik said that this is it's a recommended prayer. It's recommended, you can pray. Imam Malik never used to pray the Taraweeh in the masjid. And he actually said that I don't, personally, he said, I prefer for people to pray it at home. However, he said, let the common people, like let people also pray in, in the mosque, like don't prevent them from praying it in the mosque and don't turn them away. Like, let the mosques also be busy with people because it gives people an opportunity to spend time in the masjid where they otherwise may not. That said, Imam Malik did himself never perform taraweeh prayer in the masjid. So, 
its status is generally, as I understand it as well, as Imam Malik taught, that it's just a recommended, it's like a nafal, but a slightly higher status, that's all. It's not a sunnah mu'akkada, it's not something an emphasized sunnah. It's just, it's good to pray, that's all. Um, if you pray, alhamdulillah, that's good. Praying it is better than not praying it, but if you don't pray taraweeh, it's not a sin of any sort. Uh, neither is it something that you should be so guilty about or anything like this. And uh, the Prophet, if he wanted us to, to do that, he would have made it very clear to us, but he didn't. So that's the first issue, the status of taraweeh. The second issue is how many raka'at do we pray? How many raka'at did the Prophet pray? Well, once again, we're not exactly sure. Um, all we know for certainty is the Prophet prayed something. Some narrations like Aisha radiallahu anha in Bukhari states that the Prophet would only pray eight raka'at. And in fact, what he was simply praying was what other people call tahajjud, the night prayer. But so this taraweeh has a similar status to tahajjud, except it's a slightly like a notch or two above, that's all. Now, so there is that understanding. Some people have said, no, that, you know, we will, that what you pray is 20 raka'at. And they have some narrations saying that people used to pray 20 raka'at. So after the Prophet had passed away, in Abu Bakr's time, I mean, there wasn't that much stability, but in Umar radiallahu anhu's time, uh, he did set up jama'ah in the masjid and made one imam lead them. This was something that Umar radiallahu anhu kind of introduced. Okay. Um, is the, and, and now this opens a different discussion. Was this a bid'ah? That's a different discussion. But this was something that Umar radiallahu anhu introduced. And um, now how many raka'at did they pray? Imam Malik brings the narration that they only prayed eight. And he brings the narration that they prayed 20. Uh, so including witr 11 or including witr 21, for example. Or some people say 23. Now both of these narrations are transmitted by Imam Malik. Some people in Medina used to pray many more. They used to pray up to 36. So in the time of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and, and some people uh, used to pray up to 40 raka'at. And Imam Ahmad uh, often, I think, I think it's transmitted that he would pray about 40 raka'at. My understanding is as uh, in line with what people like Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi and other Malikiyah and including other non-Malikis like Imam Shawkani have explained that Taraweeh has no fixed number. That it is just a... Uh, it is a it is a recommended act that and you can do it. It has no number. It's unlimited. Now, technically, by that understanding, you could just one could just say, how about just praying something like four rakat or um, two rakat or six rakat. Now, I would say, although the, the the least we have in a hadith form explained about the prophet's prayer himself was eight. So one could set that as the lower limit and then anything above that. That said, so that said, I would feel if a person even prayed any nafal, uh, any nafli prayer, that it would count. I would feel that it would count. That's my personal understanding. Um, so if a person technically even prayed four or even prayed two, I would feel that that still counts. 
Um, but I would advise people in general when speaking about Tarawih to set the, the lower bar, what we know of the Prophet's prayer, and the least that the Prophet prayed was eight. So I would set that as the lower bar and the top end would just be unlimited. So whatever a person wants to pray, if you want to pray 8, you want to pray 12, you want to pray 16, you want to pray 20, you want to pray 40, you can do as you please. Okay, so that's my understanding on the number of raka'at for tarawih. Cool. So I hope that makes sense. And all this, this uh, what people are saying, you know, oh, it must be 20 or it must be 8 or... It's all nonsense. It's all nonsense, people. <laughs> the <laughs> what is it? Desh sankat mein. It's a problem, you know. Some big problem. So these are old debates, people. Very old, outdated. We need to really kind of jettison all this old baggage and move on. There's no big deal. The fact if people are praying, alhamdulillah, and if they're not, so the next, let's move on to some of these questions to do with Ramadan. Uh, right, somebody said, sounds like kindergarten theology. All right, I like it, I like it. Right, so, question I'm often asked, if you can't pray tarawih, can you still fast? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke, <laughs> by the way. So, of course you can. You must fast. Okay, you must fast, people. Fasting has got nothing to do with the tarawih. Okay, as in, I know that it happens in Ramadan. I know that you're going to say that, you know, the, the hadith, Allah fard al-qiyam was sanna lana siyam. I mean, sorry, fard al-siyam was sanna lana uh, Qiyam and so on but the truth is if you're going to look at the life of the prophet we understand this was something the prophet kind of prayed uh, and it's good to do so but it's nothing to do with your fast so your fasts are valid they're still necessary they're still obligatory do fast regardless of what else you do or don't do okay so i just want to be very clear on that people okay now Oh, when, sorry, when do we begin Ramadan? <laughs> I should have began with that question, actually. Right. Right, so, Ahlan Sahlan people, Aiden, yep. Uh, otherwise, you're absolved of it, right? Mufti, Maz, Ahlan Sahlan, Ahlan Sahlan. Right, so when do we begin Ramadan? Look, people, whatever you follow, there's no big deal. Some people began the fast today, in the UK being Monday, um, and some people will begin tomorrow because they are going, those who began today went with the general Saudi announcement. Those who will begin the fast tomorrow are going with the other announcement to do with the sighting uh, from Morocco or Northwest Africa, which is pretty close to the UK. And I think it's fine. I don't, honestly, I'm just... I don't, I'm just tired of, of this, uh, this whole debate really. And I think that this is, uh, it makes no difference at all. I don't, I'm not a big fan of Saudi, uh, which is obvious, but <laughs> I don't, is it obvious? I don't think it's obvious. <laughs> all right. But, uh, I'm, that said, I'm not against people who followed that. I think that's, um, uh, I think that's absolutely fine. 
Right, so cool. Just to be clear on that. Okay, so if you did follow Saudi or you don't follow Saudi, you follow one of the other. Don't worry about it, people. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Right, next question. What is the, what is the recommended age for kids to kids to fat kids to fast fast people fast fat we can't say. <laughs> are you fat shaming kids <laughs> is that what we're doing we're gonna say he's fat she's fat <laughs> right so what is the recommended age for kids to fast look Kids do not need to fast, okay? And I know that you start teaching kids Salah and kids can start praying Salah at a young age. They do not need to fast at a young age. So even though uh, some of the, the Hadith teach that, you know, the children should pray at the age of 10, that does not mean they should fast at the age of 10. So let's just be clear about that. Imam Malik teaches as well, and the general understanding is that kids are not obliged to fast. Now, if they want to fast, they can. Um, sometimes what happens is because there's an atmosphere, the children want to join in. So, as an example, my daughter Layla, who's now seven, she wants to fast. But she, so what it is, is we're just <laughs> going to do two hour fasts for her. That's all. <laughs> so when she comes back from school, maybe she can eat something and then maybe she can have like a two hour fast. Like my point is you can just train them. You can maybe morning up to noon fasts or whatever it is. If they want to do not impose fasts on children. Um, these that, this is this kind of imposing piety is wrong as it is. OK, but if they are keen to join in, if it's suitable, then fine. I wouldn't recommend kids fasting these lengthy fasts that we've got in the UK. You know, anything that these kind of 17 hour fasts, 18 hour fasts. This kind of stuff is uh, horrendous. I don't think you should, you know, you should be encouraging children to do that. That's my understanding. Children I'm talking about. I'm not talking about people who, who should be fasting. So teenagers, they can fast and that's fine. And they ought to be fasting. Uh, most of them, maybe not all, but many of them. But uh, so that's different. That's about children. Cool. OK, now. Somebody, Subhan Tayyib, has asked, how did the Prophet ﷺ dress? <laughs> how seriously do you, do you think that we would uh, we would know how the prophet of course in all honesty people we don't have a true idea we just have a kind of guess that this is the the kind of they had simple clothing that they wore a kind of sarong um the companions and people of arabia they that's what they wore which you, in arabic you call a uh, izar uh or so that's what they wore and and they had like a, a shirt they had a suit their version of a suit was that the Izar with a kind of uh, uh, a slightly lower hanging shirt um, they also wore a thobe which you have today kind of present still although today's thobes are not like those of the time of the prophet um, but dress seriously I think um, is something people should not I do not encourage people to dress uh, in Arabic clothing um, just be, if I mean you're free to do whatever the hell you want in life but on the basis of Islam I don't encourage it I discourage it actually 
So it's nothing to do with Islam, it's nothing to do with religion. Uh, if you just have a habit of going around dressing like different cultures, you can do what you like. There's no, you know, you can dress like Chinese people tomorrow, the other day you can dress in some African dresses. If you want the day after, you can wear some Arabian dresses. Day after, you can wear shalwar kameez. Day after, you can do whatever the hell you want. But if you're doing it based on religion, I would actually tell you to not do it. That's my advice. I feel that you've misunderstood religion and... You know, if if the companions could actually see what you people are, well, not you, but what these people are doing, they would actually laugh at them. That is that what you think that we, we transmitted? <laughs> A dress code. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Like, check this out. Like, imagine you had, like, imagine now Einstein. Check this out. Like, let's say Einstein... When he had his theory of relativity, he's had this breakthrough. So he's wrote books on it and he's wanted to transmit it and he's wanted to. And now he turns up a thousand years later to see what has the world benefited from what he brought them about his general uh, theory of relativity. And <laughs> what it is, is you have a number of people walking around just dressed like Einstein in the early 1900s. <laughs> Imagine the, the 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 shock of horror would be like, uh, right? <laughs> what have I what have I created? <laughs> that's not what they transmitted. <laughs> so that's a proper that's a proper handicapped <laughs> way to receive a tradition. You know, somebody comes with a message and you're like, and they're like, are you listening? I've I've read all of this. Are you listening? You're like, and then when you turn away, you go, right. So we got to dress like them. <laughs> tell tell all of the tell all the guys we got to dress like that from now on. <laughs> That's it. Anything else? Mm, not really. <laughs> so <laughs> right. So that's. That's, that's, uh, let's move, let's keep going with these Ramadan questions. When is a traveler exempt? Allah, when is a traveler exempt? Let's space time. Of course, space time. Einstein was a legend, an absolute legend. May Allah have mercy on him. Amin, amin. And I've got a video that you can make dua for non-Muslims who are dead, but that's a detailed video. And you can check that based on verses of the Quran where people are making dua for the dead. Anyway, let's focus here. When is a traveler exempt? A traveler is exempt the moment the traveler knows and sets that he's setting off on a journey. So if you know that you're going on a journey, you are exempt from fasting. Now, so if I know I'm traveling. Now, this doesn't mean you can't fast. Just to be clear, so if I know, to, hey, tomorrow I'm taking, I don't know, I'm going to from, let's say, Birmingham to London. Now, that's clearly a traveller, everybody would accept, um, even though I'm going, let's say, in a luxury car. <laughs> I'm just sleeping in the back. <laughs> Air conditioning, but still, still, 
I'm saying those on purpose just to show how absurd sometimes the fiqhi debate can get. Nevertheless, let's say I'm traveling and I know tomorrow I've got a meeting in uh, London. The meeting's at a, uh, it's, it's at a cinema to watch them. <laughs> no, let's say I, I've got a meeting tomorrow, business meeting. And so because I know that I'm exempt from the obligation to fast. But I can still fast, I can still do it. It's not that I don't have to, but if I choose not to do it, nobody else can uh, can kind of shame me, okay? Sin shaming me. <laughs> we gotta stop this, you know, serious sin shaming. Ah, oh, it's sin, this sinocentric lifestyle that we live. Everything is about guilt and making others feel guilty. When we feel so bad about ourselves, then we want others to feel bad about their miserable existence. <laughs> it's like, why is this guy smiling? <laughs> you miserable git. You've got a miserable existence. I want you to absorb it. <laughs> right, so let's move on. Next question. Nicotine patches. Right, people. Wearing a nicotine patch. Right, no, so, and with this, vaping, smoking, I haven't got any, I don't, I don't smoke people. By the way, for the record, I do not smoke, okay? Some people think that when I give certain rulings, it's because I must be following my desires, my dark and evil desires. I do not smoke. I, honestly, I can't tolerate the, the, the actual... Uh, the, the smoke, as in inhaling the smoke, to me, it's just so, it, it hurts my lungs. I mean, it hurts my throat. I, <clears throat> no can do, people. No es posible. Right, so, but that said, many of our, uh, our brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, many of the, <laughs> many of Many Muslims do smoke, so what is the ruling on wearing a nicotine patch? A nicotine patch is fine, people. It does not violate the fast, right? So um, this has been discussed uh, by the Grand Maliki Mufti of his era, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Aziz, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Aziz Al-Ju'ayyid, who was the Grand Mufti of the Maliki and the Sheikh Al-Islam of his time in Tunis. Uh, who gave this fatwa in the 60s when he's speaking about things like taking injections or other uh, that into your body and then debating the angle with a Hanafi Mufti, what if they contain nutrients? So not just injections, but what if you are injecting nutrients into your body? And he debates very um, articulately that why this fast is not about about becoming weak or starving because the whole argument of the Hanafi Mufti rested on saying that that would give the person strength and he said I would agree with you if the objective of Siyam Ramadan is to become weak but it isn't so so the fatwa was there I totally agree with it Nikati and many people today have given this fatwa I'm just saying uh, the reason I'm quoting him is because he's uh, quite 
classical compared to them. I mean, it's not it's from, but at least we're talking, you know, four or five decades ago. Uh, but many ulama today, many of the ulama of al-Azhar, many of the Dur um, al-Ifta, the places of Ifta throughout the Muslim world, in Jordan, in other places, they've given these kind of fatwas that nicotine patches are fine. Vaping, I would feel, is the same. I would feel that it does not violate the fast. Uh, why? Because it's not actually nutrients in that sense. It's not food, even though it is a kind of steam that you are taking in. Uh, it's vape. Uh, so I'm not saying these are good things. I want to be clear here that sometimes people think anything I say is not haram must automatically be good. You must do these things. So it's not haram on a normal day to eat soil. <laughs> it doesn't mean you'll start going out and eating soil. Not everything that is not good for you has to be haram. So when I say something is not haram, I'm not encouraging you to do it. I'm just being clear, but I will not lie. I refuse to lie on behalf of God and say that it is haram just to push an agenda in saying that you should not do this. I think you should be mature enough to make that decision for yourself or face the consequences yourself. So if you are to damage your health uh, by out of your own uh, judgment to do it, then it's your body, it's your health. Uh, I would advise you against it. But if you do it, you know, that's something you make a decision to do. But I will not lie. I refuse to lie on behalf of God and pretend that God said it. That's the difference. OK, so now. So vaping, it is not. Um, I mean, it, I mean, I don't believe it's haram anyway, but I'm just saying I don't believe it violates the fast. Smoking uh, can become slightly more controversial. I mean, it is much more controversial than vaping, I feel. Now, some ulama have said, modern day ulama like uh, Jamal al-Banna from Egypt and there are a few other uh, kind of um, modern day scholars um, that have like if you if you look online, they have said some people from Al-Azhar and other places have given the fatwa that smoking does not violate the fast. You see, to me, I would say I mean, I, I would generally tell people to abstain from smoking anyway, although I do not believe smoking is haram. I've made that very clear. But that said, I, I believe it's no good for, for a person's health. Now, if a person followed that fatwa, if they felt that they needed to smoke and they couldn't, nothing else could do it and they followed that person. Generally, I would say that, look, don't smoke and resort to patches, nicotine patches and things like this. And this is a great opportunity to stop smoking. That said, some people have said it is permissible and it does not violate the fast. They have based this on prior fiqh understandings that in fiqh, many of the ulama said by just inhaling smoke from a fire. So if you sat on a, uh, let's say you sat by a fire and you inhaled the smoke, you do not violate the fast. Um, most, I mean, I mean, many ulama would traditionally accepted that that did not result in breaking the fast. So the point was he was basing it on that in saying, well, what's the difference? Now, somebody could say, well, this has some nutritional um, one would argue it's not nutritional per se, um, you know, whether it's the carbon monoxide 
that is inhaled or nicotine. It's not a nutrient like that as in something that's going to make you grow and that kind of a nutrient. But you do what you mean by it, it contains certain ingredients that will be um, absorbed by the by the bloodstream. Now that is true, but so would one may argue so would smoke contain certain dangerous elements. Just regular smoke from a fire by inhaling that it would have, you know, whether you're going to inhale carbon monoxide or the factors that are dangerous in the air. I mean, uh, from smoke, but they don't break the fast. That's what I'm trying to say. So I do feel that if people took that ruling, although I would generally, um, I would advise people, my own advice, my own ruling is to resort to patches. But these fatwas do exist and people have given them. And if somebody followed them, uh, are they blameworthy? I don't think they I don't think we can blame each other in fiqh anyway. OK, we're, we're not in a position to blame each other. What you can do is adopt the ruling for yourself. If I smoked, I... I mean, I say this, but I don't smoke, so I don't know what it's like for a smoker, but I would probably resort to the patches. That's what I would do. And that's what I'd advise people. Right. Next, lipstick and perfume. Um, somebody has said, Ayub has asked, uh, and uh, doesn't uh, cigarettes affect and stuff consciousness as well as for smokers? Uh, not really consciousness in that sense, but it does have an addiction. Uh, the blood actually has a much greater affinity to things like carbon monoxide, ironically, <laughs> than it does even for oxygen, which makes no sense, which means you're hardwired for destruction. <laughs> but that's biology for you. huh? Imam Zubair is in the house. Ahlan wa sahlan tasharrafna tasharrafna. Right now, right, wearing lipstick... Uh, and for all the men out there, <laughs> men, if you start wearing, well, it's equality, people, wearing lipstick or perfume during your fast. It's absolutely fine. It does not violate the fast. And wearing makeup does not violate the fast. It has nothing to do with the fast at all. So unless you're eating the makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know why people would think that breaks the fast. I'm trying to think, oh, unless they think with the lipstick, by licking your lips, you're taking in the flavor, unless that's the thinking. Because I'm trying to think, why would somebody even think wearing lipstick? I mean, come on, all the Molanas will. <laughs> or is that just role play? <laughs> is that just when they're with Kari Saab? <laughs> when Kari Saab comes in. <laughs> You're like, my boy, <laughs> you come to the room afterwards, okay? <laughs> so so uh, I'm trying to understand why the questioner would ask about lipstick. And I'm assuming it's to do with the flavor. Maybe there's flavored lipsticks. I'll act like I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, right, so these things do not violate the fast. Now... You can wear lipstick and you can wear perfume. Now, people would say perfume, you know, what What if you can, um, you can taste the smell? To be fair, that's actually a decent point because you can taste the smell of, <laughs> as weird as that sounds, people are going to think at this stage, Mufti, you're losing the plot. You need some psychiatric help, right? Which I won't argue against. It's probably true. But this... Um, 
you see the uh, interestingly what um scientists and uh medical re researchers have now discovered and confirmed that there are olfactory uh sensors uh in the tongue the same sensors that we have in the nose to pick up smell the olfactory senses uh, we have similar olfactory sensors with on the tongue with taste sensors in the taste buds and that's been confirmed now medically so that is interesting so when people would say look i can taste the smell of something and uh or like people might say that that tastes like petrol but they've never actually tasted petrol <laughs> that's because these senses of taste and smell are intricately bound people intricately bound but that's fine it does not violate tasting something does not break the fast by the way so if you're going to taste something it does not actually break the fast it's considered discouraged if it was unnecessary but it does not break the fast hence a lot of the rulings that the hanafia gave and things like this if a woman is cooking and she needs to test like how much salt have i put in there and she's just like she can taste it it does not break the fast because tasting is not eating okay this one just tasting you know i just tasting <laughs> and she tastes away the whole handi <laughs> she's like let me just taste that again taste that <laughs> one hour later she's <laughs> eaten the whole handi <laughs> This one only test this one only makro this one <laughs> right so anyway that's fine right a controversial one people uh <laughs> a controversial one exams are people exempt from fasting for the exams what do we think yes no yes you know what i should have a i should have like a lever where we can where the public can vote no yes no <laughs> with you deviant public all of you would just vote for permissibility anyway <laughs> you 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 haramis <laughs> right so <laughs> and after that <laughs> i'm going to say it's permissible <laughs> see it takes one to no one uh i do believe that exams are a valid excuse to uh not fast if you feel the need i'm not saying you need to do this listen i i'm using the word need on a few occasions here it is not necessary for you to forego the fast to miss the fast but should you feel the need should you feel that look i'm going to be in an exam hall for 6 hours or 4 hours non-stop or whatever it's going to be and you know it's going to really get to me i need to perform <laughs> for the exam for the exam i need to i need to bring my a game to the exam so therefore i need to have my drink and like oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> i need to like write the cheats on here so i'm like oh yeah Oh yeah. <laughs> right so the it is I feel that is a valid excuse. Okay, many people today are just unnecessarily being harsh. Look, on this point I want to say something. Right, look. People are going to say and I'll repeat this point a little later on or or summarize it again. 
that look people are gonna say that oh when we were young right when we were young we put up with a b and c you know when our parents were young they did this when the sahaba fasted they did this look all of these things are true yeah people in the past have gone through incredible incredibly difficult times accepted taslimul musallamat this is this is uh, this is just a given okay it may also be true that you as a child or sorry not as a child but as a young person younger person went through hardship and fasted against the odds that may also be true it may be true and i respect you for that but we have to stop living vicariously through other young people they are not us right now i went through some very difficult fasts at some point i went through or some other times when you know back if you're going to talk two decades ago if you're going to especially like if you've traveled and you've lived so many years in different parts of the world but that was look that's in the past that's different and that's to me or that's to you that does not mean other people like i impose what i went through on other people they are faqihun nafs as imam shatabi would say every person is faqihun nafs he makes his subjective judgment about he, he or she makes their own call do i do this yes or no and it's their call it's not for you to make so leave these people alone like stop guilt tripping them like yeah you can give your advice by all means but stop kind of like i've read certain posts on facebook saying it is qatan haram you will burn in the fire of hell remember the fire of hell is more intense than in this heat in the uk or remember calm down satan <laughs> you're acting like you and your parents and their parents have been living in hell for <laughs> god knows you just calm down mate <laughs> look to undertake all the hardships you want for you stop imposing this on others it comes back to that theory that i said we have to accept the religion the deen for ourselves not for i accept it so long as i can impose it on others as well that we have to have a disconnect okay we got to cut that umbilical cord people separate ourselves here so right okay so that's that question i do believe that it's a valid excuse and you can make that up later on right iftar on an airplane what is going on people iftar on an airplane now when should you if you're traveling on an airplane look you can just ask the crew cabin crew that at what point where we're traveling will we hit sunset and the time they give you you can just open the fast based on that so many of the fuqaha in the past used to say like there's in fact there's many fatawa even you'll find from ibn abi zaid al-qairawani and other going as far back as almost a thousand years ago where they would say that when they had certain minarets um 
that when a person was on the minaret at the top of the tower um, and the people generally on the ground could see that sunset had occurred but to the person on the tower he could still see a tiny part of the disk of the sun so how do they how does that work then if the people on the ground open the fast but the person on the on the tower in the minaret he could still see a tiny portion of the sun does that mean the fast of the people on the ground is invalid now this was a question asked over a thousand years ago to the ulama and they said look no that each just goes by their own perspective that's fine if he can see the sun then let him just open the fast accordingly as he sees it said so with that in mind if you're on a plane just ask um just ask uh the cabin crew and whatever time they tell you that's fine if the time's extraordinarily long if the time is going to be extraordinarily long like let's say you're traveling in the opposite direction <laughs> so <laughs> you're gonna get like another four hours on your <laughs> fast then you have the option to either not fast and make it up another time because you're a traveler or you have the option to i would say to just calculate it accordingly if it's going to be excessively extra that's uh, that's my fatwa cool all right people what else is going on um right so nosebleed oh no we've got an interesting one before that <laughs> sexual acts people and foreplay which then presumably leads on to nosebleed <laughs> That's actually, that, that's the order that they've asked me in. So, okay. Sexual acts and... Right, so... <laughs> people, this is Astaghfirullah. This is Ramadan, people. <laughs> but, I suppose, since the devil is deep within people, since the devil is deep within... Right, sexual acts, what does that mean? Now, <laughs> I'm not about to go through a list of sexual acts. Uh, what I'm about to say is what is haram, okay? What is haram is clearly, sex is clearly haram during the fast, okay? So that is haram. Um, however, just acts of foreplay or things like this are not haram. They do not violate the fast. Uh, I'm not saying you need to be doing that. It's not, I'm not saying that Imam Saab has to spend his day doing that. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that's what I meant to do because not haram any. I thought that any. <laughs> that's, I'm not saying that, but it's, it does not violate the fast. So whether it's simply touching or kissing or whatever, these kind of things do not violate the fast. Uh, people have asked about people have asked since this is live and unrestricted people they have asked about oral sex i would say although that technically would get a bit in a bit of a kind of gray area but i would say that i would place that with sex so that would be generally forbidden uh, during ramadan uh, not during ramadan sorry <laughs> during the fast during the fast, 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 fast. Calm down. About to have all these people boycott me all of a sudden. 
<laughs> During the fast, that would be forbidden. But generally, general acts, sexual acts of intimacy are not forbidden and do not violate the fast. This does lead on to the question <laughs> of things like madhi and uh, money and wadi and all this, you know, in the thick books. You know, when you're reading these thick books and it's like saying, and this liquid is, <laughs> you, uh, and this is what is emitted and you have these fluids and these fluids. And you're like, huh? <laughs> and they're like, and then you have wadi. And you're like, what the hell is wadi? <laughs> wadi, a whole valley. <laughs> this is, right. So they say in the thick books, what they will speak about is madhi. Now, madhi is pre-seminal fluid, okay, so presumably that's like prostatic fluid or the pre-seminal fluid, in, in generally speaking. Now, you have that and then you'll have semen, sperm, which they call money in Arabic, not like, I suppose it sounds like money, 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 <laughs> same kind of sound, I guess, money, but, uh, and wadi is something which, I don't, I, I'm not exactly sure what wadi is. <laughs> what wadi is but they say it's a it's a kind of a fluid that some people can uh, that they can emit this whilst after you sorry after urinating so they describe it as a thick kind of like almost as a very thick sperm-like fluid that's how they describe it i don't know <laughs> i've got to go to the images section <laughs> and, then, and then just get in trouble that what the hell are you <laughs> they should have like an images with Refer to appendix A, so it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's like click this, right? So, so now people will say your fast breaks. Does your fast break with emitting any of these fluids, or with a woman? Let's say, uh, so these were male with the female, just uh, vaginal, whether it's just fluids and things like this that are excreted. Do these break the fast? Now. The answer, I would say, none of them break the fast. Okay, in my understanding, pre-seminal fluid, uh, vaginal fluids, whether it's going to be uh, actual semen, sperm, ejaculation, whether it's going to be wadi, none of these things actually break the fast, in my understanding. That is what many ulama as well in the past did say. I mean, they weren't the majority, but people like... Ibn Hazm has argued this, you'll have Shawkani, Imam Shawkani, and several other people have argued this point that look, there is no Dalil in the Quran or Sunnah that the fast is broken with uh, by excreting these fluids or by, by, by releasing or emitting these fluids. There's no Dalil, the Prophet never said this, the Quran never said this. So this is simply the Ijtihad of Fuqaha. And if you're going to go with principles, then usul teaches that something by default stands unless categorically overruled. So the fast remains. If you have a fast, it exists unless it is broken by something that is clearly spoken of in the Quran and Sunnah. So that's so that in my understanding does not break the fast, although many people will say to you that that does um, but the thing about uh, even sperm if you're going to think about it like even many Hanafiya uh, argued that it does not break the fast 
and and hence you had even people like Albani argued for that. You'll have people uh, saying, and they touch on the issue of masturbation during uh, Ramadan, and they will say even though Albani wasn't fond of masturbation, <laughs> that came out wrong. <laughs> I'm sure he actually I don't know whether he was personally fond of masturbation or not, but I know he wasn't fond of the topic of masturbation being permissible for people. That said, he argued that uh, it does not violate the fast. Um, and, and many Hanafi ulama, Shawkani, Ibn Hazm, many of these ulama did argue that it does not violate the fast. And that seems to make a lot of sense. That is the ruling, the fatwa that I would give as well in line with those ulama. Cool. So, right now, next question. Somewhere praising Avachand. Okay, so what? Right, no idea what that is. Right, so I've answered those questions. Right, nosebleed. Uh, I don't know why these questions go in that order. <laughs> All of the <laughs> those lead to nosebleed. It's like, what? What is this person even doing? <laughs> How? What's the intensity levels? That's. <laughs> oh, I'm so committed to. <laughs> nose starts bleeding. <laughs> There's a. Does the nosebleed break the fast? The answer is absolutely no. It does not break the fast. Nothing to worry about there. Um, what if the the blood is swallowed? Um, it doesn't still break the fast, uh, in my understanding, because it's not something intentionally done like that. So if a person uh, with this, we can add the the question of vomiting. Does vomiting break the fast? And it doesn't. And even if you uh, end up obviously having remnants of the vomit or it kind of comes up and goes down. But that's because these things are not, people don't intentionally do that. And they don't consider that food. <laughs> Although it's regurgitated food. But it's not considered food at a social level. So people would never consume <laughs> to be disgusting and gross. Blah! Mufti, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> but nobody would consume vomit. So nobody's sane, <laughs> right? So um, so th these things do not break the fast. Nosebleed does not break the fast. Um, and with that, they've asked about cupping. Right, so cool. Next question, injections and a drip. Being on a drip. <laughs> you know, in, in places like Pakistan, if you if you fall ill, the first thing t for you to have satisfaction that this is a genuine doctor, they have to just put you on a drip. <laughs> so you're just lying there with a drip. And that's, this guy's a genuine doctor. <laughs> right, look, in my understanding, these things do not break the fast. And I've highlighted the fatwa already of Sheikh Muhammad Aziz Al-Ju'ayyid who was the Grand Mufti of his time of Tunisia and the Grand uh, and the Sheikh al-Islam of uh, the Malikiya. Now, he has given that fatwa about injections and nutritional injections as well. So I absolutely endorse and agree and support that ruling. So I think that's absolutely uh, fine. Right. Somebody's asked, uh, Nahu Sarf Mufti, are you struggling with birth productivity? 
<laughs> Why, what tips you got, you naughty naughty? <laughs> right, so these are the, the kind of... <laughs> Is this what my, is this the best my haters can do? I mean, you need to, a, a, a bit more energy, a bit more. <laughs> Mufti, are you struggling? <laughs> anyway, next question. Right, so, varying fasts. Oh, that's going to be uh, a slightly controversial. Let's take a few others on fasting. Then I'm going to come into what are the different types of fasts people can be doing for those who are struggling that's going to be slightly controversial you know not not like me to do anything controversial but if there's any others to do with um, let me just check this because i wanted to recap right sorry on uh, eardrops and eye drops eardrops and eye drops look even though some i mean okay not with the eyes but with the ears the you know the 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 canals and whatever can be connected with the throat but th that's that's irrelevant nobody eats or consumes by <laughs> pouring things into their ears so we've got to keep things natural people how was the deen in the time of the prophet what were they trying to do what was the purpose of the fast once you understand that you realize that you realize that these things make no sense. You know, many of these ulama are saying, oh, if you had eardrops, your fast breaks, or water got into your ear, that's it, you've broken your fast. And that is absurd. I mean, have you ever thought, I know I'm thirsty, let me just pour that into my... <laughs> and if you have, <laughs> then my friend, <laughs> you've got greater problems. <laughs> you're worried about the wrong kind of problems there's a hierarchy you've got some serious psychiatric problems going on so yeah so that does not break the fast okay just to be clear about that let's also right okay now are there any what about nasal sprays nasal sprays are fine um you can use nasal sprays, they do not break the fast. What about, uh, I've been asked as well about using things like uh, to uh, toothpaste or um, just say throughout the day, breath fresheners or Listerine kind of strips that you have these, uh, you just place them on your tongue and they dissolve. Um, or mouthwash, using these kind of things whilst fasting. These things do not break the fast, people. And I encourage, I implore. <laughs> people, please brush your teeth. Use breath fresheners for God's sake. <laughs> right? Use Listerine. Use goddamn... Some of you use bleach. <laughs> Because, because the ozone layer cannot take this anymore. <laughs> Just because you're fasting doesn't mean you need to turn. <laughs> you need to. <sighs> what? I'm fasting. It's like. <laughs> you know, the radioactive kind of readings just go. They rock it. Like, what the hell was that? It is one of the most disgusting, disgusting things that you can, 
imagine seriously is bad breath that is one of the most despicable <laughs> honestly that's that is just so and so if whilst you're going to be fasting because you won't be consuming much so naturally the the bodily kind of your the, the saliva in your mouth is not going to be generated as much as it will on a regular day therefore it is likely that you will have odor and i'm saying it nicely you're gonna have some stench coming out of your mouth for god's sake for the love of humanity brush your teeth if you go to work then take with you these strips or breath fresheners or uh, you can get small kind of mouthwashes, uh, travel size, take them, rinse your mouth out, be fresh people, be fresh, okay, that is a must, this is wajib, I'm telling you, this is wajib, <laughs> right, forget, this is more wajib than your fast, <laughs> because your fast just depends, it's just for your sake, this is for the sake of humanity, Right. Have compassion on those around you. You know, woman ahyaha and who gave life to, <laughs> to others. It's as though he gave life to the whole of humanity. So and they go, yeah, yeah, dragon breath like yeah. <laughs> in the name of Islam. And then they're using these hadith. Oh the hadith says this is more beloved. Uh, than the smell of perfume you're thinking are you buzzing <laughs> your bad breath is better than perfume are you <laughs> have you been drinking while fasting because you're seriously intoxicated of course this ain't better than bloody perfume this is disgusting that hadith was said as a consolation to somebody who felt it on a personal level. Like if a person felt, like imagine you're fasting and think, oh my God, I need to do something about my breath. Now you might, this might, even though you would, the Sahaba would use fresh siwak, uh, miswak, which people call miswak, the, the stick. Now that, if you ever use that, it's actually very fresh. And it freshens the mouth and it's like using toothpaste. It's actually the equivalent, the natural kind of equivalent. Now, you will, but imagine a person felt that, like on a personal level, they felt like, oh my God, like my breath, I better go. But that feeling, to compensate for that feeling and to console the believer, the prophet said that, look, don't worry, like that, you know, tranquilo, tranquilo, that this is more beloved to Allah. Like, meaning, like, don't, don't let yourself, you know, don't feel bad. Not that don't change it. Of course, change it. But don't let it get you down that you have to do this. Okay, that's what it is. Not that, like, feel proud about it. Yeah, I've got bad breath. God loves bad breath. What kind of, <laughs> what kind of a twisted image are you giving about God? <laughs> that he loves bad breath that's like crazy right so and especially with what muslims eat anyway with ramadan they're like kebabs and all this <laughs> belching and all kinds of nonsense right so right <laughs> let's get to this point people 
I've been asked by a few people. Now, this is an important question. I've been asked by a few people that they struggle to fast. And that they are just being very honest with me. So these people have said to me, right now, look, I just want to say that I appreciate people just being transparent and their levels of honesty. So they have said to me that, look, I cannot do the fast. Okay. It is just too much for me. I mean, they won't die, but it's obviously nobody's saying that you have to die. It's not that level, but it's just too much for them. I mean, they're normal, healthy people. They're not like, they're not necessarily unhealthy. I mean, I don't know if they've got certain levels, but nothing apparently unhealthy about them. I'm not saying they're kind of in a hospital or something, but they've just been honest with me. And they've said, look, I, you know, I can't do this. That, that This is in the UK. Some people have said to me that it's way um, too much for them. It's too long. It coincides at a time of the year with with it just getting warm. And in the UK, people are not used to warm weather. The days are just too long. It affects them. They find themselves day after day that they are stuffing themselves. Okay, when you open the fast, people stuff themselves because they're starving. Then they feel that they're force feeding themselves for sahur because they don't want to starve for the next 16, 17 hours. So they're force feeding themselves. And then they're starving for so long. They're so underproductive. They're so lethargic. They non-stop just and even if they get used to it then when they open it they just stuff themselves and then they, and this is a repetitive cycle in which they feel that they're doing themselves more harm than good so what can they do now i will express the different opinions okay and i feel that it is permissible for people to follow these opinions um, i'm not saying they have to follow them okay so i'm being very clear on that now, one understanding is that you just fast as it is with the hours in a timetable and you can go by any timetable. The timetables don't, I mean, any local timetable, sorry, that's what I mean. So you could be, you know, whatever kind of, you don't have to go with a particular mosque. You can go with any kind of mosque that you're comfortable with or you're setting. Now, that's the normal standard thing that you do what everybody's doing. That is option A, that you fast. With dawn, there is some problem with dawn. Some people, let's say in Birmingham, people are placing dawn probably, I don't know, it's before four o'clock. They're probably saying maybe quarter to four, that kind of time, uh, a.m. Some people are placing it much more earlier. Um, that, you know, they do that anyway. But, but I'm just giving you an idea. So you could just go with that and open at sunset. But that will lead to an excess amount of hours fasting. That's option A. And many Muslims are doing that, and I applaud it. And we all encourage them and make dua for them. May Allah bless them. Option two, or option B, is that you can eat, extend your sahur dawn time up until fajr. Uh, sorry, up until sunrise, just before sunrise, with enough to quickly just pray fajr. That's or what we call subah. The so five minutes before sunrise let's say now that's an option if that helps you can take that that's option b this was practiced by several uh sahaba 
it was practiced by certain tabi'een you've got from i believe hudayfa ibn yaman and other companions used to say that we would eat in the time of the prophet and it would be daylight except the sun hadn't risen and i believe there's a tradition from uthman and there's certain t uh, other people come after amash and other people who used to openly practice this so that's option b if that helps now i did tell that to some of these individuals now to them this was not enough like it did add on another hour but it was still way too lengthy for them option c um, is a fatwa that you can estimate a fast the period that you will be fasting now this was a fatwa given traditionally by great scholars like muhammad abdul by rashid rida by other great like scholars you know the mashaykh of al-azhar uh, the great I mean, the great Shuch of Al-Azhar, the, the you know, senior grand muftis of Al-Azhar, like uh, Jad Al-Haq, like, um, I believe maybe Mustafa Maraghi gave it as well, but I'm not too sure um, about him. Uh, Sayyid Tantawi gave this fatwa. Um, but many, right up until today, Diyarul Ifta al-Misriya, the main fatwa uh, council of Egypt, still gives this fatwa. That, and what they say is any countries above 45 degrees latitude so that definitely includes the uk i i, I believe birmingham is uh, i believe we're 52 i think uh, but nevertheless i mean these countries it includes most of europe apart from southern like spain is exempt pretty much but the rest of europe almost comes in um, it includes most of the northern states of america it includes canada it includes this kind of northern hemisphere above 45 degrees now these they said that these people can estimate the fast based on how the prophet would have fasted uh, so that region where revelation came so the hijaz Mecca, medina how they would have fasted so you could just take a calendar um, um, you could do that with like what are the timings there today or take some of them have said that this could be uh, estimated at like splitting the day and night in half so you have 12 hours day 12 hours night you split it like that and maybe so anything 12 hours above is enough to estimate as a fast time so let's say 13 hours would be a valid fast now based on this a person could uh, begin estimate and this fatwa of estimation by the way was also given uh, by Sheikh Zarqa as well um, I, he also agreed with the 45 degrees um, the 45 degrees kind of uh, latitude as well now this so what they could in essence do is say well I'm going to begin at dawn so let's say if that's let's say that's four o'clock as an example now anything let's say 13 hours they could just estimate a 13 hour onward fast they could fast for 13 hours they could fast for 14 whatever they feel they could do they could open it anything whether it's 5 30 p.m 6 p.m they could open the fast um, this is a valid opinion S several there are certain al-azhari mashaykh that are also endorsing this that 12 hours they've said even 12 hours would do but above they've encouraged for like a minimum of 13. Um, so that's i feel a valid position so if a person was doing that uh, their fast would still be acceptable if they felt that they couldn't do the other fast. 
Now, what is the reasoning behind this? Okay, now there are some other opinions as well with some people like Sheikh Hussein Halawa, uh, one of the senior um, um, senior muftis of the Majlis al-Ifta has given a fatwa of saying a person if they felt incapable they could just choose a different time of the year for those countries above 48 degrees latitude but I'm focusing on option C for these people in saying and they've asked me to explain how would this be justified now the reasoning behind this is one that this deen is a deen of ease Two, that when Ramadan came, you have to remember that in the time of the Prophet, what were the kind of fasts that they were enduring? Now, the general fasts that they would have endured would have been around the 13-hour kind of mark. That's what they would have fasted. Uh, they wouldn't have been... I mean, even if you stretch it, you're looking at about 14 and not even that really. And on this note, I'd like to explain to people something. And that goes into this, uh, the sacred that ties into this discussion of the sacred months, and the how the Arabs kept a calendar. Now, this is something that I'd like you to pay attention. It's going to be, you know, it's something a bit. Uh, it could kind of go over if you don't really focus. And that is that. Look, in the time of the Prophet and pre-Islamic Arabia, the the calendar that was kept was a lunar calendar, but it was a lunisolar calendar. Very much like the Jewish calendar is today. And the Jewish calendar has been since the time of Moses and so on. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, but it's a lunisolar calendar. And what that means is that although they follow the moon, so it's similar to us, they have the, you know, the, the new moon and they have the 12 months based on the lunar cycle. However, they have, they introduce, they realign their lunar calendar with the solar calendar. And this works, it is, it does have some complexity to it. And the Arabs had the same thing. They were copying, uh, most likely, the Jewish people. And I'll see if I can bring up actually and just... Uh, I did have this up earlier to read, unless I've lost it, to show you guys. I wanted it to... Right, so... Because I wanted to go through, just read out, to give you an idea of why the Arabs stopped doing this. There was something, there was a leap month. So what the Jewish people do is every three years or so, they add an extra month. Now they, and I'll, and I'll show you what they do, but the Arabs had this, what they called nasi, or cups, but nasi, which is mentioned in the Quran. So this would, because every year, the solar calendar, sorry, the lunar calendar goes behind the solar calendar by, like it shifts by 10 days. So it's 10 days short. 10, 11 days. Now in three years time, that's around a month. So they would introduce the Nasit, which would realign and knock back all the calendars, all the months to their original position. Now there is a bit more technicality and complexity to it, which is one of the reasons why you can see the Arabs stop doing it, because they just got distracted. Um, but in the time of the Prophet, it was there. Now, 
We know this because it's mentioned in the Quran as well. Although the Arabs in the time of the Prophet started messing around with it. Because they had this concept of sacred months, which is a whole very different discussion in and of itself. What were the sacred months, for example? Because when people say, no, this calendar, this calendar, here's a, a very interesting question. What were these sacred months? Now, if you say, well, Dhul Ka'da, Dhul Hajjah and Muharram, and then you say, what? Uh, whether you're going to go with Rajab or Safar or whether you're going to go with Ramadan as Rabi'a did, which is separate. What was the purpose of these sacred months? What is the purpose? People say, oh, you're not allowed to fight in the sacred months. But one would ask, wait a minute. But if wouldn't God aim for a higher standard and say you're not meant to be fighting anyway? But, but if you say, no, but sometimes you have to fight. Say, oh, well. But in self-defense, surely you can have self-defense in these months as well. And if those months are sacred, are they sacred to us today? I mean, what do they mean? What are you meant to do in these sacred months? Now, why is that interesting? Because that's interesting because that's actually mentioned in the Quran about the four sacred months. And it's mentioned in the Hadith. So we understand that this was a ruling that the Arabs had and the Quran just endorsed for them. Now, today it has no relevance to us. So that shows as well how rulings will change with the day and age. It also raises a hell of a lot of other questions on what were those sacred months even about and why was one of them all the, all the other, you know, at the other end of the calendar in, not linked to the others. Even if you're going to say, well, some of them were for doing Hajj. But okay, but for going to Hajj and coming back from Hajj, but what about the other one? I mean, what's that about? And they wouldn't agree and some would do it uh, this year and they would change it around. And that's why the verse of the Quran said, That people were using this to do kufar, like to kind of mess up people's hajj and to mess things up and to attack people. And, to... and the Arabs were never good at keeping dates. You see, and this is important. Why is this important? Because this is the complexity of what you have to do to maintain the, loon, the loony solar kind of calendar you see so this is an example I'm just going to read briefly to give you an idea that the Hebrew calendar is based on both the lunar and the solar cycles months are measured by one cycle of the moon around the earth according to the Talmud one complete cycle of the moon around the earth takes 29.5 days this value is very close to the average value measured by NASA which is 29.53 very very similar since the average value is about 29.5 days, months months alternate between 29 and 30 days in the Hebrew calendar. That makes sense so far. I mean, Muslims, that, that's fine. They would do that. The common year in the Hebrew calendar includes 12 months, but there's a difference of about 11 days, same as the Islamic thing, because they were taking from a lot of the Jewish practices um, between 12 lunar cycles and one solar cycle. You see, one complete cycle of the Earth around the Sun takes 365.25 days, right? Now, however, the lunar takes 354.36. So there's a difference. To synchronize this counting of the days, the Hebrew calendar includes leap years. Now, what they do is they have a 19-year cycle which they have to keep regulating with different variations. So they introduce the leap month on the third year. Then you'll see here that they'll, they'll do it on the third, on the sixth, on the eighth, on the eleventh, 
and 14th, 17th and then 19th. So there's variations. Now, to synchronize the lunar counting of days with the solar cycle, the Hebrew calendar includes these leap years where the month of Adar is replaced by two months of Adar. Adar Alif and Adar Beit, which is A and B. So they introduce this. Now, they also mention, that check this out, that uh, in 19 years, it's calculated with a, a period of 19 years. In 19 years, the total difference between the lunar and solar cycles is 19 times, and it's got the whole calculation here. The difference amounts to seven 30-day periods, blah, 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 right? Now, you can, you can read all of this up, but I wanted to highlight an interesting point, that there remains a difference of three days. To make up for this difference of three days, they are added to the months of Kesvan and Kislev during each 19-year uh, period. So you can see that there was a lot of hard work that the, um, that the, that the, the, the scribes or the people, the scholars, had to do. Right? They had to keep account. They had to, so in year three, then in year six, but then it's not in the next three years, it's in the next two years. In year eight, then it's in three years, year 11, then it's in three years, year 14, um, 17, but then two years and then 19. So in a 19-year cycle, everything is regulated with the solar, with the solar calendar. So the lunar and the solar are in sync, okay? Now, the point I'm saying this is the Arabs were doing this. Okay, that's a bit, bit I mean, it's, it's a bit complicated. Put it aside. What I'm trying to say is the lunar months and the solar months were pretty much, or the solar seasons were in sync. So Ramadan in the Prophet's time was pretty much static. So it would have occurred where if you take Ramadan to be at the ninth month of the calendar, let's say, falling around September, let's say, it meant Ramadan would have always pretty much been in September. Even if it moved back towards August, it would have then been knocked back every so many years. Now, with this in mind, September is when we have the equinox and March, when night and day are of an equal length, okay? And we're working towards that in September. So this means that really the fasts during the lifetime of the Prophet وسلم, would not have exceeded really about 13 hours in essence. So that's some of the understanding and that's some food for thought to take into consideration uh, for this ruling. Now, I'm not saying people need to take it, but those who... Now, those people, somebody said, would that have been in autumn? I mean, it, but it would, uh, you can understand it would still be warm. It wouldn't be winter. And by the way, this knocking the months back into sequence makes sense. Hence the, their names, Rabia, right? So, so when you have months like Rabia al-Awwal, Rabia al-Thani, which means spring, they would occur in spring. And Jamadi al-Ula, Jamadi al-Akhir, Jamad would occur in winter when things would be kind of like, Frozen, not frozen, but kind of like solid for them, as in they wouldn't be fruitful. So the months had meanings to what they were doing. And even, I mean, September wouldn't have been cold. I understand it would have been still quite hot as it was edging slightly towards August. 
But the point is, it would have still been pretty much of an equal length. So that's quite important for us to, to bear that in mind. So I hope that makes some sense. There is some further understanding that, see, somebody could say, well, look, you, you know, this is, look, what's wrong with going, this is your cultural, let's say our understanding today. Does Islam really permit us to go with, let's say, the culture of the age? If people are saying, if some people are saying, look, I'm struggling with that. So what? I mean, get up to it. This is an obligation. This is a fair criticism that somebody could make. Somebody could say, look, what's wrong with you guys? Look, if Allah says it's fard, what the hell is wrong with you? Rise to the obligation. And I would say that is a, a fair criticism if there were not an answer for it in the Sunnah of the Prophet. Now there is. Now if you go, um, you will find a, um, a very interesting hadith I've cited before by uh, Safwan ibn Mista, sorry, about Safwan um, ibn, ibn Mu'attal, sorry, not Mista. Now, ibn Mu'attal, now this companion of the Prophet is the one whose wife complains about him. She tells the Prophet that he does not pray. Uh, she complains about a few things, but one of the key criticisms I want to focus on is she complains that he does not pray Fajr. He does not pray Subah. He wakes up after sunset, uh, sorry, after sunrise. And, um, you know, he, he misses Fajr. So he is called to the Prophet and think about it. He is his people are just outside of Medina. They're not in a distant, they're not like in Switzerland or something. You know, they, they are within the outskirts, within that kind of, they're still within Hijaz. Now, he comes to the Prophet and the Prophet asks him, look, what are these complaints? And the Prophet asks him, what's this? Do you, do you not wake up for Fajr? And he says, Ya Rasulullah, inna qawmun la nastaykidu. That we are a people, we, our culture, my, you know, my tribe or my little, my settlement where we live, our culture. And think about it. This is a very micro culture within Hijaz, within the Arabian culture. He says, we are a people who do not wake up except after sunrise. Did the Prophet say to him, shame on you. I said, Allah said, and you said this. Did the Prophet say, rise to the challenge? What did the Prophet actually say to him? The Prophet said to him, When you wake up, then pray. See, that is a very interesting hadith. Because it shows that, look, the deen, even within a very similar, the Arabian culture was quite much, I mean, there was, you know, quite a bit of, uh, I mean, it wasn't monolithic, but there was a lot of similarity between the different tribes. They, they were still very similar compared to non-Arabs. Yet within this, you have this microcosm of where a small part of a tribe has a different culture where they don't wake up early. And it's not just him, his people don't do it. So he says, in and the Prophet catering for that, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, is a, an absolute, I mean, it epitomizes that the verse, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِ 
that we have not sent you except as a paragon of mercy for the world, for the for everybody, for everything, and that a dinu yusr, this deen is one of these people. So I'm not saying that. Look. People need to stop what they're doing and fast like this. I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm actually commending people who are doing the fasts. I'm, I'm making dua for them that are doing the lengthy fasts and doing all of these things. May Allah bless us all. May he make us all capable. May he give us the strength. But people who want to choose option B where they extend, let's say, that's still similar to option A. But those who want to choose option C where they just want to estimate uh, a set number let's say a minimum being 13 and they just want to fast 13 hours of the day or anything above that that they can that that several ulama have said that that is permissible uh, i feel that it is permissible for them to take that fatwa and we are not allowed to really criticize them or condemn them we're not allowed to shame them we're not allowed to guilt trip them and it shouldn't bother us you know it comes back to that thing that my deen is my deen my relationship with Allah is my relationship. If I feel that, look, uh, what's wrong with that person? Why can't he fast 17 hours like me? No. You should be concerned about you and Allah and your fast. Alhamdulillah. It's not, you know, you're not in charge of them. You know, they if they are fasting according to an understanding that has been explained to them, then they have the right to do so. I hope that's uh, being of some help people right so cool let's uh, move on to right I, we've got quite a bit actually to cover here oh my god is that the time yes salam yes salam okay people let's take a quick look at this hadith on uh, this hadith to do with uh, if a person drank alcohol his salah is not accepted why am I going through this hadith? I've seen this hadith being cited quite a bit where people have said. Um, right, so somebody has asked that does the school of Medina, in my understanding, this is in line with the principles and the usul uh, of the school of Medina, of Masalih al-Mursala, of uh, Ad-Din al-Yusr. Um, that's in line with that. I would agree that that fatwa is permissible for people to take. I would uh, agree with that option I would give the fatwa that is permissible to take that fatwa if that makes sense I mean I haven't made up this ruling I haven't come up with it I'm what I'm saying is it is a valid ruling within Islam for people to take um, if they felt that that life was that difficult for them to fast and each to their own and let's not judge people okay you can't just because you can do something doesn't mean you have the right to judge other people and say that why can't they do it that's not how this theme works and that hadith perfectly illustrates that the hadith of the person not waking up the people not waking up for subah right okay moving on to this question if a person <coughs> drinks alcohol what is why is this question important well many people have said this includes the fast if you drink alcohol that your salah is not accepted for 40 days and they rely on some hadith and some people have said that the same applies to the fast so so if muslims have drunk alcohol or many scholars have included drugs with that now unfortunately 
drugs are very common in the Muslim community. They're not uncommon, put it like that. It's a shame, it's a tragedy, it's a cancer within our communities, but it is there. And the truth is many Muslims do take drugs. It's a sad reality, we make dua for them. Uh, I think it completely destroys their lives. That said, should they fast? And does their fast, does this apply? The answer is their fast is absolutely fine. and They should fast. This does not apply. And this hadith in and of itself is actually unacceptable. Okay, let me tell you what this hadith says. And you're going to be able to know that this hadith is nonsense as soon as you hear it. The hadith says, Man sharib al khamar wa sakir. Whosoever drank alcohol and became intoxicated, Lam tuqballahu salatun arba'ina sabahan. For 40 days, I mean it says mornings, but it means days, his salah will not be accepted. Wa in mata nar. And if he dies, he'll go to the hellfire. This is what the hadith says, yeah. So it's a belief that you'd actually go to hell, even though, first of all, most of this ummah, Ash'aris and so on, we cannot even base beliefs on Khabru Ahad. Okay, we're not even allowed to base any beliefs on just isolated narrations. Okay, so this person will go to the hellfire. Then the Prophet says, if he does Tawbah, then Allah will accept him. But if he goes back to alcohol, then, you know, the same thing. His Salah won't be accepted for 40 days. And if he dies, he goes to hell. And then the same thing. So this is repeated for up to three times. Then the Prophet allegedly says, this is nonsense, blasphemous. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's a shame. I mean, uh, and it's made up against our Prophet, but nevertheless, that he then allegedly said that if the person returns after three times to drinking alcohol, كَانَ حَقًّا عَلَى اللَّهِ that it is uh, really a duty upon God that he will make him drink, right? This is uh, drink min رَدْغَةِ khabal. And the Sahaba said, what's رَدْغَةِ khabal?" And allegedly the Prophet said, عُسَارَةُ أَهْلِ النَّارِ so you know the people melting away in the hellfire, you know the kind of stew that is being made by the, all their melting, <laughs> that the stew of the hellfire, that osara, that kind of uh, what's being squeezed into the hellfire. This guy is going to get that to drink. <laughs> this is an utterly unacceptable hadith, right? Utterly unacceptable. So what are some of the problems? Where is this hadith transmitted? This hadith is transmitted in Ibn Majah, one riwayah, uh, three riwayahs of it in Nisa'i, uh, four riwayahs of it in the Muslim of Ahmad, one riwayah of it in Dharam. Those are the books. First of all, all of these hadith come through just one companion. One companion. Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As is allegedly the person who said this. That's it. No other companion. Think about it. Such a major thing. Salah not being accepted, dying, going to hell. No, no, nobody else knows this. Just Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As. Then pretty much from him, only one person, pretty much, I mean, there's some other names, I'll go on to them, but mainly, mainly in the bulk of all of these narrations, is this person called Abdullah ibn Fayruz ad-Daylami. Abdullah ibn Fayruz ad-Daylami is allegedly transmitting this. He's the main transmitter of this in most of all of these narrations. There's one, two variations, I'll mention them. But they, it comes through this Abdullah ibn Fayruz ad-Daylami. Now, who is this person? They say, oh, he's the brother of so-and-so. And, and 
is he reliable? Oh, yeah, he's reliable. Why? Because, oh, because he's transmitting from... No, who said he's reliable? How does he become... There's a system to make him reliable. Ibn Hazm mentions this guy is unknown. We don't even know who this guy is. See, this is the problem with some of the muhaddithin. To justify their bid'ah, you know, their, their, their... To justify their careers and their work and what they're invested in. They just certify certain people. Because otherwise they feel that they couldn't, that this wouldn't work. But Ibn Hazm highlights like, look, we don't even, this guy's majhul. And he's the main transmitter of this through the one. Right, so okay. Then from him, you have Rabi'a ibn Yazid al-Iyadi. Who people say is a reliable scholar, but many people say, by the way, most, I'm sorry, some people have said, by the way, when he transmits from Ibn Daylami, there's actually a person in the middle called Abu Ishaq, al who's called uh, Abu Idris, sorry, Al-Khawlani. Right now, so this Khawlani, Abu Idris Al-Khawlani is between them. Now the, but he drops him, or somebody before him drops him, and in none of the chains from Rabi'a, to Ibn Fayruz al Daylami is this guy mentioned. But then, in this chain before him, you've got Al-Walid ibn Muslim. Walid ibn Muslim. This guy used to transmit from so many Du'afa people, so many weak people. He would on purpose drop people in the chain. This guy was Kathiru Tadlis and Taswiya. Even if you shift this chain, let's say you go to the Sanad in Darmi, it's transmitted, it begins, Darmi begins from Muhammad ibn Yusuf al-Faryabi. Right, so, who by the way, Abu Hatim says, he transmitted this hadith. Abu Hatim al-Razi says, Faryabi transmitted the hadith that having nose hair prevents you from having leprosy. That al al-Anf, that this was amanu min al-Juzam. He then says that then later in life he went backtracked and said, no, I'm not, you know, it's, it's not true. Yahya ibn Ma'in would say that hadith is absolute kid. It's absolute utter lie. It is a lie made up against the Prophet. The Prophet never said anything like this. So you've got people like Faryabi. And then the same chain, you've got Uza'i, by the way, even Uza'i, even though he's a great imam in fiqh, great imam, and he does transmit hadith. What does Bayhaqi say about him? He says he transmits hadith from people. He says, So you take hadith from people who he didn't know so well about their circumstances. You go to the hadiths in Ahmed, once again, the same kind of chains from Ibn Daylami. Right, right. Then you've got another one. Okay, what about those which ain't from uh, Ibn Daylami? So in the Muslims of Ahmad, you've got one from uh, uh, from Amr ibn Shu'aib and Abihi and Jaddi. Now this chain, Yahya ibn Ma'in says, La hujjata fihi. That this is, and Abu Zur'a says that this is basically Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As's grandson, who, who used to, Abu Zur'a says, used to have a book he used to transmit from. This chain is such a weak chain where he says, from my father, from my grandfather. So you've got that. And the rest, 
you're going to say that, oh, what about uh, there's another chain with uh, uh, Nafi ibn Asim transmitting from Abdullah ibn Amr. Oh, but who's in the beginning of the chain? It's Hamad ibn Salma al-Wasari. What does Bayhaqi and other people say about him? Oh, his memory got messed up. Right. This is why Bukhari refused to transmit from him. The other hadith in Ahmad, once again from Ibn Daylami, answered the same thing before. You've got the other riwayat from Nasa'i. Once again, uh, you've got them from uh, Daylami. Now, there is another variation from Mujahid. Now, somebody may say, oh, what about that narration? That has Yazid ibn Abi Ziyad in it. Who Hakim, Bayhaqi, Abu Zur'a, Razi, Nasa'i, all these people have rejected. Right, so the point is, let alone others, there's many other, there's Kalam in Mujahid himself, but my point is that these narrations people, they, then there's another chain uh, in Nasa'i which has Baqiyya in it, who everybody knows Baqiyya ibn al-Walid and the problems with him, and let alone, then he has the same problems, you've got the same Ibn Daylami and the same chain. The point is that these narrations are absolutely isolated, they contradict the Qur'an, they contradict our beliefs in Islam. A person by drinking alcohol and if he dies does not go to hell. We do not believe that. Uh, Muslims generally do not believe. So this hadith cannot be true. And it is a matter of belief. And therefore it clashes with the Quran. It clashes with our principles and it clashes with reason. That why just because of that one sin Allah would throw him in the hellfire. As in he's clearly destined for hell. Because it says if it, then he's definitely going to hell. So that doesn't make any sense. It is a hadith da'if people, okay? Unacceptable. So the fasts, the salah is valid still. Um, and if, once again, things like alcohol and drugs are bad, they are wrong, they are haram. Um, on drugs, it depends. Drugs is a spectrum. Some drugs may not be haram, but they're still bad for people. I mean, it's still something that we condemn. Now, that said, they do none of these things uh, violate the... I mean, if you've had them, that doesn't mean you can't fast. It doesn't mean your fast won't be accepted. That's what I want to say. Cool people, well, we've stretched this on quite a bit. What I'm going to do is quickly touch up on our dear friend and then we'll call this a wrap. The reason being is during Ramadan, I won't be going through Monday nights with Mufti. So there isn't labats if we slightly stretch this one. Um, right, just one moment. I'm going to have to go back and find our good old dear friend. Right, so people. Right now. Yassalam. Where is he? Where is he? Uh, our good old friend. You see, people, I've never heard of this. Uh, Nabil Nisar Sheikh. <laughs> That's a profile for Muzmach. <laughs> that I found him on Tinder. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. <laughs> what the hell would he put that profile on Tinder for anyway? I mean, <laughs> right? So this guy. He's made a video dedicated to me. So the least I could do is give him some time a day. Um, he made this video saying, 
right, he's in defense of Imam Nawawi and Imam Ibn Hazm against the vile slander of Muftatin. <laughs> Not Mufti, Muftatin. I love Muftatin Abu Layth. Al-Mariq, not Al-Maliki, Al-Mariq, meaning the apostate, the one who's left Islam. In addition to that, he goes on to, very kindly, in his, this is on his Facebook page, by the way. He does go on kindly to, uh, in this, call me scum, devil, Mariq from the deen, an apostate. He does that at about 24 minutes into it. Um, he also has no problem in uh, he misrepresented misrepresents my whole argument but that's aside I'll answer to that uh, at about one hour 20 minutes into it he says this scum piece of shit <laughs> this scum piece of shit Abu Layth <laughs> so anyway so my friend my friend <laughs> Aapne yaad kiya to hum aage. Wo aayenge thame jigar. Dekh lena. Allah, Allah, Allah. So, my friend, let's see if we can... Allah, the Allah placed acceptance in the hearts of the Muslims for the books of this pious scholar. And this wise scum, this piece of shit, <laughs> Bulaif, he comes and slanderously accuses him. <laughs> I, I have been Latin. <laughs> so... So basically, basically, not now what to do, what to do. <laughs> I, I have Bin Laden. So basically what Bin Laden is saying here, people, is he feels, he feels, so just to clarify the point so you guys know what's happening. Right, now, I, a few weeks ago, in some of my sessions, spoke about bisexuality, homosexuality, and I said that, look, we need to stop, Muslims need to stop being homophobic. And, and then I mentioned how scholars in the past were, they acknowledged the bisexuality that human beings had, especially men. And they almost stated it as though it's a fact. Like, so they speak of it in a way that they accept, they expect you to be like, that's obvious. So I gave the example of Imam Nawawi when he's reading about where, and I've read out his fatawa saying that when he's asked about boys who haven't developed full beards, uh, and can you look at them and can you be like this with them or hang around with, and he says, no, it's haram, it's haram. And then he goes on to say it's because they are like women. And then he says, in fact, many of them are, he says, in fact, some of them are more prettier than many or most women. Now, you see, so what Imam Nawawi was doing there is acknowledging by me saying, like if I say that, look, this guy 
is prettier than a woman than than all these women you see when you're comparing them it's different if i just say oh this guy's a good looking person because that's just an a, a regular statement but when i compare if i said this guy is better looking than most men then i'm comparing him with men the moment you compare a man as being better looking than women you're looking at it from a sexual perspective now because he's talking about it sexually that's what the question is so i said that imam nawawi is acknowledging the bisexual nature of humans so and then i say many other ulama as well i did not say imam nawawi was gay i didn't say that uh, although obviously i crack jokes all the time but i didn't say that and i didn't say he said homosexuality was permissible but this uh, <laughs> so bin laden here has a rant for about a whole hour going on about trying to say homosexuality is haram and i said in my clip that look most the ulama always said homosexuality was haram some of them did disagree like yahya ibn aktham and so on and he speaks about yahya ibn aktham saying oh but uh, but why they don't wear his books then why they don't transmit this then why they don't transmit <laughs> well obviously because you see they were going to bury a lot of this kind of discourse they were going to bury this this is natural that is how institutionalized religion works the what to do what to do but they have got all of this why don't you check the books when they speak about yahya ibn aktham why don't you read up on this uh, and he said oh he was very close to uh, khalifa mamun and amin i know but khalifa mamun was also gay any <laughs> <laughs> He's forgotten that Khalifa Amin was hardcore homosexual, hardcore. Like he was only interested. He wouldn't even look at girls. And Mamun was openly bisexual. And Mamun actually became bisexual because of Yahya Naktham. He was influenced by him to that extent to try it out. So the Khalifa of the time was rampantly openly gay. I mean, this is like a known thing. The, uh, in fact. Amin's mum tried to she brought several slave girls and servant girls and would cut their hair and dress them up as boys and call them ghulamiyat uh, that's what they became known as just so he starts taking an interest in in girls i mean this is this is the khalifa <laughs> waqt the caliph <laughs> you know khalifa comes from the word khalf from the behind the <laughs> the behind <laughs> They must have taken a different meaning to it. <laughs> acha cha cha. We lead from behind. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> so here Bin Laden he goes on to look check this out. I need you guys to hear this stuff, man. Look at this. Boys, without any there being any need for it, any sharia need for it, any dire need for it, because and they cited this. He's eye. reading the fatwa of Nawawi. Wali anhu fi ma'na fi ma'na al-mar'a. Yani one reason is because Allah says lower your gazes. This is number one. Number two, wali anhu fi ma'na al-mar'a because he is just like a woman. A boy. He's as good as a woman. He's as good, good, good as a. Uh, why? Girl. Why? 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 Because he has no facial hair. <laughs> so he, people find uh, it uh, lustful to look at that. Just like they want. 
he's just like a just as good as a woman just as good why molana sahib why because he has no facial hair <laughs> Dirt. this one is obvious it's good like a woman <laughs> a cha 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 so all the men that you see clean shaven <laughs> that mean they and they exciting you you naughty naughty <laughs> you harami <laughs> to look at women so so uh, that's why it's haram to look at them this is that boy now listen oh uh, moreover uh, even some of them uh, some, some of, of them the boys. some of them are even better looking then many women the better looking than many some women of them, some of those boys why why are better looking ahsanu min kathira min why why ya molana why could be ugly she could be an old woman <laughs> be, uh, yeah, no. did you hear that did you hear that old oh, he is just like a woman right. he is as good as a woman he you got to hear this good, good as a, a beautiful girl because he has no facial hair so he people find so, uh, why uh, why are some of them like more prettier than many women so, why uh, that's why it's haram to look at them bal ba'dhuhum ahsanu min kathira min min an-nisa why why moreover uh even some of them uh, some of them ba'dhuhum some of them bin laden are even better looking than many women some of them some of those boys Why? 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 Better looking, ahsanu min kathira min insa than many women. A woman could be ugly. She could be an old woman. She could be a piano, not so pretty to look at. So let me get this right. Bin Laden over here is saying that the reason why some of these boys can be sexy. is why why are some boys <laughs> why are clean shaven men or boys sexy uh, or prettier sexually because this is talking about sexual uh, prettier sexually than women than many women because many women can be ugly <laughs> did he just say that for god's sake did he did He, this bloody Neanderthal, just call women ugly. I mean, for God's sake, did <laughs> he is a prime reason, a prime reason why why incest is haram. <laughs> this, you know, this like if <laughs> you know, as 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 uh, Exhibit A, the love child of a brother and sister, <laughs> like. like You know, are your let me guess, your mum and dad at worst case their cousins and then their cousins and their cousins and I bet some of them in between. <laughs> This is why siblings shouldn't have children because it's just wrong. <laughs> Cuz you how the hell did that ugly thing call women ugly? <laughs> Oh my god I swear you could not make this stuff up his reasoning and he's saying this like this is so common sense like of course some boys are sexier than women because many women are ugly 
God's sake. <laughs> Did the predator just say that? Does that just come from the predator? For God's sake. Oh my God. Yes, Salam. <laughs> what to do? What, what? No, what, 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 what? I don't know. You know, of course, you know, many boys, you know, when I'm sitting around boys, I must do Zabdul Basar, you know, this one. <laughs> I swear, these but but this guy. <laughs> oh, Bin Ladin. <laughs> Baz, Ajao. Baz. <laughs> Not Bacha Baz. Baz. <laughs> this guy. This guy must have misunderstood. Somebody must have said to him, Baz, Ajao. You know, like, fix yourself. And he misunderstood it as Bacha Baz. <laughs> So he just became a pedophile. This, honestly, you know, if you ever needed to know like what the next terrorist or bloody is going to look like, this is the guy right here. For God's sake, I swear, this guy, I watched this thing. I couldn't, I was falling over laughing, thinking, oh my God, did he just say that? <laughs> and he's saying it like so, uh, yes, what, what? Of course, they like women. And he's actually proving the point which I set off to say in the beginning. He's actually saying, yeah, I find I, I, I would need to do Ghadr al-Basar because the boy is just like, the boy is just like women, and he is like women, and he, because he's got no hair, and he, and he. <laughs> you bloody retard, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's just like women, and he. This is why you have all the homosexual rape going on in Al-Mamlakat Al-Arabiyat Al-Saudiyah You know, in the, in the Mamlaka In the Mamlaka, bro In the Mamlaka So in the Saudi Kingdom, this is why You've got all this kind of uh, You know, where, they, where they're raping, unfortunately, all these young boys Because this is the kind of lunacy <laughs> This is the kind of ludicrousy that you've got going on People say, that's like beer going out during Anyway, now what to do? What to do? Uh, I'm pretty sure maybe Nabil bin Laden will watch this. Well, bin Laden sahab, if you do my message, look, I've got a beard, so you can't find me attractive like that. You know, it's I've got a beard, yeah. Yeah, your beard, yeah. Kari sahab, zara, zara fasle se milo, ha? Fasla, fasla rakhiye, fasla. Ay, abin ladin, ha? Hamko halke me mat liyo. This, this, I, I am thinking if, if bin ladin wants to have a dialogue, why, why you no message me? You know, we can talk, you know. No private, no slipping into my, sliding into my DM. But maybe we could have a dialogue. Dialogue. What to do? What to do? This is the kind of nonsense that we've got, people. This is why the Ummah is struggling. Because these people have got ton loads of petrol dollars <laughs> to flood the internet with all this material that they want. And then you end up with people like this. Because somebody goes onto Google, they look for Islam, and this is what they find. And they find a goddamn... Uh, <laughs> a beauty pageant. <laughs> I mean, I'd want to say more to this guy. You know, it's like, like when I look at him, 
There's more I want to say to... But then I think, you know what? Life beat me to it. <laughs> in fact, in his case, genetics beat me to it. <laughs> Allah, Allah. Ya salam, ya salam. Wallah, ya akhi, wallah. Okay, wallah, wallah. Ah, Ramadan Karim. <laughs> this guy, you know what? You got to keep these kind of people away from the Taraweeh. With all those young people praying. This one, dirty, dirty mind, you know, this one, dirty mind. You know, you got to be careful, you know, dirty mind. This one. People, with that, I'm going to leave you all to it. It's been late. It's, it's been good expressing Tehe Dil Se. Tehe Dil Se. Ye Pegame Mohabbat. To our, uh, to our friend Bin Laden. Right, so it's been good. But uh, in, in Ramadan in general, I'm thinking uh, I might do some just intermittent kind of Q&A, brief kind of video clips, but I won't be doing the Monday nights live. Uh, I'll give, you know, as always, as each year, I leave Ramadan out. So I hope that you can use the time wisely. I will be sharing videos. I will try and maybe intermittently come on, just deal with some topics. If there's any issues, do feel free to reach out to me. Do send me your messages, do send me your questions. I will try to respond, inshallah. Take very good care of yourselves. Remember me in your kind du'as, people. Say a little du'a for banda na cheese. <laughs> you, know, you know, in the Urdu culture, right, when they're about to praise themselves, they kind of belittle. Like, they, to act humble, they kind of like say, oh, this worthless, uh, they, they kind of say all these kind of worthless things about themselves, like, Bandana cheese, like this person who's nothing, or Hakir. Hakir is like despised, and then they have like Akar, the most despised, <laughs> the most despicable. <laughs> yeah, oh man, calm down, calm, calm down, bro. <laughs> you're kind of this, uh, you're, you're taking this a bit too far, getting into character. But people, remember me in your kind of eyes. Inshallah, have an awesome Ramadan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.